Volunteers Children's Church, so I want to invite you guys to head back in that direction. Brother Daryl and praise team, thank you for the, the, the music portion of our worship. Uh, the wonderful, wonderful songs that remind us of the great love we have in Jesus, the great faithfulness he has shown us, and the victory that's ours uh, in Christ Jesus, that we are going to win a victory uh, if we will just honor him. Now, um, again, sometimes we need to redefine what success is. Does it mean things work out like we want them to? Okay? It means that, that success for me and you individually are that we are able to honor God in our circumstances. He is a redeeming God, and he can redeem any sin. He can redeem any failure. He can redeem any brokenness. He is a redeeming God, but it doesn't mean he's going to fix everything in our life. But in the midst of it, we're going to have a victory because we're going to walk in such a way that honors him. We're going to demonstrate the power and the presence that he has for us. We're going to respond in a way that glorifies him. We are salt and light no matter what's going on around us and no matter how we're being responded to. That's success for a Christian. That is victory because we are, aren't going to control or change somebody else's heart and God's not going to force them to change. Uh, so victory for us is honoring God in our lives, in our response, our reactions, our attitudes, and the way that we live. We are salt and light no matter what we receive from other people, okay? And I think that's very important for us to be reminded of today as we go into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to Matthew chapter 5, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount and we looked at the Beatitudes, the attitudes that a Christian should have in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We've got to mourn over our sin. We've got to understand that we are uh, spiritual paupers. We have nothing to offer. So we're coming as beggars asking for God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's righteousness in Christ Jesus. And then we're to live in such a way that demonstrates his presence and his power in our lives. We see that in the Beatitudes. Then he describes us as salt and light. He says, you are, as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Jesus, you are salt and light. And that's what we've got to remember. Above all else, we are here, we are still on this planet, still taking breaths of air after we're saved for the purpose of being salt and light. That's your whole purpose for existence now, is to be salt and light. And we're to live radically different. He says in the, the last part of, of that section where he's talking about being salt and light. And this is where we're kind of launching off into the rest of this sermon because I believe that's what Jesus did. He begins to explain what he meant by Matthew 5, 20. It says that we are to have a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness or exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. It says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've got to remember that the scribes and the Pharisees are great at keeping the law. I mean, they kept the letter of the law. They didn't kill anybody. You know, they kept the Ten Commandments, and they worked to tithe and to do all these religious things. But it did not transform their heart, because if it didn't break the law, then it was okay. As long as I don't kill them, I can treat them any way I want to. 
long as I don't commit adultery, in other words, as long as I don't, don't divorce my wife, I can do anything I want to. As long as I keep the law. All these minor details don't really matter. The issues of the heart and attitude don't matter. That was the thought process of the Pharisees, and that's the thought process of many Christians today. Well, as long as I don't, I'm okay. Duty. We talked about the difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees. They did things out of duty. Well, I've got to do this. A surpassing righteousness, an exceeding righteousness, a righteousness that moves beyond the, the, the thought processes in the life of the Pharisees, the actions of the Pharisees, is a, a, a righteousness that's motivated by love. God first loved us, then we love Him. And, and we, we love, we give back what we've received. We, we demonstrate or show to other people the things that we have received from God. And so since He loved us sacrificially, Jesus says that means we are to love others sacrificially. And he begins to explain what an exceeding or a surpassing righteousness looks like. What does it mean to do right things in such a way that the, the, the people, the world, sees your good works and glorifies the Father? Only an exceeding righteousness. Something that goes beyond what anybody would expect. That goes beyond what anybody that doesn't know Jesus would do. That's an exceeding righteousness. And unless our righteousness exceeds just doing right, because we have to, then we, we, we aren't glorifying the Father. That's why he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. Jesus said, but I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. And today we're going to look at one of the most... I don't want to say one of the most important passages, but one of the most difficult, one of the most needed passages for us today as married people and as people who are preparing to get married and what we need to, to demonstrate in our marriage and our relationships. Because folks, there's nothing, there's nothing that demonstrates the relationship of God's and or, or between Jesus and his church, God and his church, than the, the, the institution of marriage. The whole purpose of of marriage. That's why God instituted it so that, that he could demonstrate the relationship he has with his church. That's why Jesus came. That's why, uh, so that we could be reconciled to God and he built his church. He formed his church to demonstrate the right relationship between God and man. And so the marriage relationship, Paul uses this analogy and others use this analogy talking about the, the importance of marriage and that it's not just to take care of your sexual urges without upsetting God we, we've 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 got it down to well as long as I don't have sex outside of marriage then I'm okay I'm going to get married so I can have have sex and and God won't be upset with me it's not the purpose of marriage well I'm going to marry somebody that's going to fulfill me I'm going to marry somebody that that I'm looking for somebody that's going to complete me I'm going to look at somebody that's going to take care of me I'm going to look at somebody that's going to that help me overcome my 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 struggles and my hurts and and overcome all this baggage that I've got. He's going to fix all my problems. Or she's going to fix all my problems. And that is not the purpose of marriage. Because they can't do it. That's why so many marriages end in divorce today. That's why so many people don't want to get married. I'll, we'll just live together. This marriage thing is, ain't worth it. I need to have a way out. 
But Jesus, if we're going to be followers of Christ, we've got to hold marriage at a very high level, the same level that God does. And we've got to have the same standards in our marriage, and we've got to pursue those standards in marriage. And so Jesus is, again, talking about this surpassing or exceeding righteousness. He says you can't kill people. That's generally, okay? You've got to, got to be nice to folks. You've you got to love people. He says, but then marriage... It's got to be different. It's got to be held in a higher regard than the norm, the unsaved, the, the people that don't know God. Marriage should be totally different. Doesn't mean it's going to be easier. Doesn't mean it's not going to have any problems. But we've got a different focus, a different purpose for marriage, and a different hope because Jesus is our God. So if you would stand with me, let's begin our, uh, and jump right off in this. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 27, and we're going to read down through verse 32. Remember in this section he's talking about, it says, You've heard it said to the ancients, you've heard this is what was taught, but I say to you. So he's explaining in better detail. He says, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Commandment number 7. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it far from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends a wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord God, these are some very difficult concepts, very difficult passages. God, I am not at a loss of a struggle that we all face with these. So God, I pray today that as I teach your truth, God, you would help me to teach it seasoned in grace. God, help me teach that you do hate divorce. And you have a very high standard and purpose for our marriages. But God also helped me to teach the grace, the power, the hope, the presence of your Spirit in our lives that enables us to do this. God, I do know there are many who have experienced divorce. So Lord, I pray that today you would help me Teach the truth about how you feel about it, but also teach that you are a redeeming God. And grace is still available. And your desire is that today, they're in a new marriage, it would honor you. And they would look at it, walk in it, and live in such a way that demonstrates your presence and your power in their lives and in their marriage. God, give me the grace I need to teach this well today. 
God, let me teach it through the authority of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, Jesus is teaching the letter of the law, which, the, which is uh, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees said. Just don't commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And we know that, that we are not supposed to commit adultery. We're not, now, we've got we've to look at here, what is he talking about? He's talking about the marriage uh, of, of a man and a woman. He's, he's not talking about before marriage or after. He, he's marriage. Preserving demonstrating the power of God in the marriage relationship. And so he, he says the Pharisees have taught, and well, the, ten, the seventh commandment of the top ten is thou shalt not commit adultery. And, and most people at that time would say, well, as long as I don't get a divorce, and we say that today. We excuse them, well, I haven't divorced him or her. We're not divorced, but there's no love in the relationship. There's nothing that resembles what God wants and desires for the marriage relationship. The relationship is broken. We just haven't divorced yet. So we're okay because we hadn't divorced. Jesus says the sin of adultery begins way before the signing of the divorce certificate. The letter of the law says don't commit adultery. But the sin of adultery begins way before you lay down together. And Jesus is reminding us that if we're going to have a surpassing righteousness, if we're going to have a marriage that, that is salt and light, that demonstrates the glory of God in our lives and in our relationship, Jesus, we've got to guard our hearts. Because that's where the sin of adultery and the sin of divorce begins. says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Now, let's clarify some things here. Okay? He's not just talking to men. Right? Wise, he's talking to you too. But this is, this is more of a, a man's issue. Most women are not very physically oriented, but men are. Doesn't mean women don't become that way. And doesn't mean that, that women can't lust after a man in her heart. But guys are very visually oriented. And so Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Now, we've got to define what lust is. Because we're, we're, I mean, we're, we're human. God created us this way. We see a beautiful woman. Hey, that's a good-looking woman. As long as it stops there, there's nothing wrong with it. Wow, she's pretty. There's nothing wrong with that. What does it mean to lust? Let's look at the definition. Lust means to long for, to covet, to set your heart upon. So the, the, the act of adultery begins when, when we remove our affections from our wife and start putting our desires and our want-tos and our, our passions towards another woman. 
or another man. When, when we begin to, it's not just seeing a good-looking woman or a good-looking man and thinking, man, that's a good, nice-looking person. But it's when we start saying, man, I wish my wife looked like that. Or, man, I wish my, I remember when my husband looked like that. I wish he looked like that again. And it's not just looks. Most of the time, we put our affections off of our spouse because we start focusing on the negatives of our spouse. Well, they're not meeting my needs. They're not treating me like I think I need to be treated. They're not, just, they're, they're not as nice as they used to be. They're not as affectionate as they used to be. They're not as caring as they used to be. He don't hold my hand anymore. He don't show any affection out in public. And, and then we see other people. See other couples. We see that 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 wife, and man, I wish my wife acted like that. Wish my wife would dress like that. Man, I wish my husband would hold my hand like that. I wish he would say those nice things to me that her husband says to her. And so we begin to to remove our affections from our wife and we start focusing on what they don't do, or our husband, what they don't do, and we see what other people do and we think, well, that must be who they are. But the problem is, is we all messed up. Everybody's got some baggage. Everybody's got some bad habits. Everybody's got some problems. But we're really good at putting a mask on in public. You ain't got a clue how they're like or what she looks like when she rolls out of bed in the morning. You ain't got a clue how he acts when a door closed at the house. He breaks wind just like your husband does. <laughs> men are men. Women are women. You think she might be all that. You ain't got a clue. You think he might be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you want your husband to be just like him. But you don't know what he's like. How hard he is to live with. How selfish he is. How vain he is. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say... That if you look at a woman with lust, well, I'd rather have her than the one I got. I think I need me a younger model of him or her. He says that's when adultery begins. It's the, it's, the, it's the exchanging of affection from your wife or your husband, your spouse to someone else. He says you're already setting yourself up for failure. You're already committing that sin of divorce and that sin of adultery. So it's not just as long as I don't get a divorce, as long as I don't sleep with her, or if I don't sleep with him, we can be really, really good friends. We can talk. We can be emotionally connected. Because you've taken your passion 
and focus off of your spouse and put it on someone else. That is adultery. God says we've got to guard our hearts, men and women. We have got to make sure that we keep our focus and our passions and our desires towards our wife or our husband. And that's up to us. Now, how do you do that? He gave some very practical things. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole in these next few verses, okay? He's not literally mean. And if you look at something, it causes you to start lusting after another woman to dig your eye out. He's not saying it literally. But what he's doing is, hyperbole means he's using this, this crazy idea to make a point of importance. He says, if your right eye makes you to, it causes you to stumble or to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble. Cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, two things here. He uses the right eye and the right hand because that is normally, I'm sorry lefties, but this is a right-handed world. Okay? That's usually the, the, the side that's used and, and instructed and talked about in Scripture. The right hand, the right eye, the right side is the, the side of strength. The side of dominance and important. Most people are right eye dominant and right hand dominant. So if you lose your right eye, it, it's hard to, to focus and to see with that left eye. It's hard to compensate. If you lose your right hand, it's hard to to do anything with your left hand. I'm just going to tell you, I can't do anything left-handed. If I lost my right hand, I would be at a loss, huge loss. I can't even brush my teeth left-handed. Oh, it takes practice. That's why most basketball players can't go to the left because they can't dribble but with their right hand. If they're left-handed, they can't go to the right because they're left-handed. And so, Jesus is, the, what's the point? Doesn't matter how important you think something is, if it causes you to begin to remove your affections from your spouse, get rid of it. Don't matter what it is. Because it's better for you to lose something that is important, lose something that is helpful, lose something that, that, that makes your life easier. It's better to lose that commit the sin of adultery. It's more important for your affections to be where they need to be rather than the pleasures, the comforts, the satisfactions, whatever it is. If it's a computer, it's better to you not to have a home computer. If it's a person that you work with at work, better to avoid that person. If it's, if it's somebody that you and your wife hang out with, a good friend, and you start feeling this connection with this other person's spouse, 
You start being drawn to them and wishing your spouse was more like them and acted like them and treated you like they seem to treat their spouse. It's better to not be friends with them anymore. You think, preacher, that sounds harsh. That's telling us how important marriage is and the marriage relationship is to God. And we have lessened it down. We, we, the, the, the worst thing in the world that has ever happened to the family not pornography, it's not abortion, it's no-fault divorce. Well, I just fell out of love. I just don't love them anymore. You don't love them because you let your, your, your emotions, your affections be attached to somebody else instead of keeping them in check and keeping them focused on the one that you said I do to. Well, I just feel like I married the wrong person. How do I know if I married the right person? As one prominent pastor said, the right person is the one you said I do to. Love never fails. If you said that you fell out of love with them, and I wonder were you ever in love with them at all? You had an emotional attachment. And maybe you married them because they made you laugh. You married them because they were so nice and so kind and so helpful. And man, they opened the door, did all this kind of stuff. And they just made me feel important. And they, they made me feel like the center of their life and the center of the universe. And they just lavished all this on me. And man, every time we were together, we just had such a good time. And then you wake up with them every morning. And you're tired after work with them every day. And the struggles and the pressures and the pulls and the necessities and the requirements of life begin to take. Well, they, he, he doesn't pay attention to me like he used to because he's working 14 hours a day. She doesn't, she doesn't uh, laugh at my jokes like she used to because she's worked 14 hours a day. She's tired when she gets home. She's still got to cook supper. She's got to take care of kids. She's got to do all this other stuff. Yeah. Understand that... <laughs> You don't look so hot right now for her or for him. But we got married for the wrong reasons. That's the only way we can fall out of love with somebody. Because love, God-honoring love, never fails. Now, does that mean it's easy? No. Does that mean that they're always going to treat me the way I treat them. No. But it does mean that we can love like God loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can show them that same grace that we've received from God. That same mercy. That same patience. Same long suffering. That even when they're not treating us well, we choose to treat them well. Because if I only love my enemies or love the ones who love me back, what have I done? Even the pagans do that. And sometimes we need to love our enemy who at the moment may be our spouse. 
You all know our story. Randa and I have been enemies at times. And if you're married long enough, there will be a time where he or she feels like your enemy. So what do you do then? We can talk about that in a minute. But the thing you do not do is divorce. They say, well, I, I just, you know, rather than commit adultery, I, I don't love them anymore, so rather than, than, than mess around with them outside of marriage and, 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 and sleep with somebody else, I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to sin by committing adultery. Well, you've already done that. He says, I'll just divorce them, and they can move on, and I'll move on. I said, divorce is adultery. Because the sin of adultery came way before the divorce ever happened. When you took your affections from your spouse and moved it to somebody else, maybe not anybody in particular, but you removed it from them, and now you're just, I'm just looking for the one that's going to be right for me. So I'm going to divorce them and find the one that's right. That's adultery. Now what is... What does Jesus say about divorce? Now, it, Jesus was asked very specifically in Matthew chapter 19. Flip over there with me right quick. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm going to tell you that God's attitude, God's disdain for divorce hasn't changed. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked by one of the Pharisees. said, uh, verse 3, Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, it is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Because then you could just write a certificate of divorce. Well, I'm not going to commit adultery, so I'll write her a certificate of divorce and send her on, his way, on her way, or his way. He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them, God, from the beginning made them male and female? Some people say that Jesus never spoke about same-sex marriages. He did just then. God made them male and female, and that's what constitutes a marriage. And he said, verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. God constituted marriage. God instituted marriage. And when you entered into that, that marriage relationship, that covenant marriage relationship, God is the one that puts that together. God is the one that seals that covenant. He says, don't let any man, including you, separate it. God hates divorce. Because divorce is the breaking of the covenant. Divorce is a result of adultery that may not have happened physically, but it's already happened in your heart. And when we divorce, we're committing adultery, and if our spouse does not want the divorce, but we choose to, then we cause them to commit adultery. Many people will say, well, well, look, I didn't want to. I didn't want to get the divorce, but she or he was adamant and would not, and, 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 and they file for divorce. They sign the divorce. They, they, they push this divorce thing. And my thing is, you can't control them. God looks at your heart. What did you do to make this marriage work? What did you do to demonstrate a surpassing righteousness 
What did you do to make this thing work? That is success. If you honored God and you tried and you did everything you could to make this work, but they refused to, you have no control over them. You can only do your part. It takes two to make a marriage and sometimes only one to break it. But most time it's two. So we need to make sure that we keep our passions and our, our focus in the right place. Now, what are some practical ways that we can do this? This is kind of where we Probably, I mean, you, you've heard the passage, so what, what do we do? How do we, how do we affair-proof our marriage? How do, we, how do we guard our heart? Well, glad you asked. Number one, pray. Pray. Keep your heart focused on God, but also keep your life under the authority of God. You need to focus on your relationship with the Lord. That's the only way you can have an exceeding righteousness. That's the only way that you, the Holy Spirit can work through you and give you the strength, give you the patience, give you the grace to give to that spouse that's needed to make this thing work. But sometimes our prayers need to be specific. I'm going to tell you, just transparency from your pastor's heart, okay? I'm a man just like any other man. I'm a husband just like any other husband. And we all struggle. So I'm not going to speak for my wife, but I'm going to speak for me. Sometimes I need to pray Proverbs 5. Turn with me for just a second. Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 19. Proverbs comes right after Psalms. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Proverbs chapter 5. So rather than just generally pray... Keep your heart right with the Lord, your relationship right with the Lord. Sometimes it is very necessary that you pray specific. Verse 15, we're going to read down through 19. Drink water from your own sister. Now he's speaking generically here. <laughs> he, he's speaking um, about sex, Okay. Drink water from your own cistern and, and fresh water from your own well. Should your spring be dispersed around streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes I have to pray, verses 18 and 19, to keep me from desiring 15 through 17. Sometimes, men and women, we both need to pray. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. You can substitute husband there too. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. I was a college athlete when my wife and I met. I don't look anything like I used to. 
My wife was 95 pounds when we met. She don't look much anything like she used to. But you know what? I rejoice in my wife. I'm going to be honest. When I start looking at a good-looking woman, I think, man, that's a good-looking woman. I remember when Randy used to be that size. I think, hmm, she ain't had four babies either. I start celebrating, man, my wife has earned the way she looks. She, she's got four of my kids. She's got three, almost three, beautiful grandbabies because she was willing to sacrifice that 95-pound body as an 18-year-old. And Man, it gives me a whole new look at her. Again, I can only speak for me. I can't speak for her. Men, sometimes we need to celebrate the wife of our youth and celebrate. When we start looking and thinking about these things and we start letting our mind run and we start getting tempted to put our affections on somebody else and how things used to be or what, what we need to celebrate, rejoice in the wife of our youth. Rejoice in the fact that she has stuck around with your hard-headed self. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Celebrate her goodness. We, we too often focus on the negative. Therefore, we don't rejoice. How do you rejoice over the wife? You, you, you start, when you start thinking about the negative things and you start thinking about what you wish she was like and what she does wrong, you start celebrating what she does right or he does right. Because I promise you, whoever you're looking out there is a mess too. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Then, then verse 19, you're saying, preacher, you're getting a little personal here. Well, the Bible does, so I'm sorry. It says, as a loving hind or a, a, a fawn, a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Sometimes, men, you need to pray, God, let her breasts satisfy me. God, I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to look at anybody else longly. God, I want her. She's been with me for 37 years total now. God, let her satisfy me. Let, not, not that she is more than she is now, but God, let my heart be satisfied with her. Let me be exhilarated with the love that we share. God, guard my heart so I don't start looking somewhere else and fantasizing somewhere else and, and expecting something different. This is my wife. This is the wife of my youth. And help me rejoice in her and help me celebrate her. Help me get fired up over her. Let her make me say, wow, when she walks in the room. See, it's got nothing to do with her. It's got everything to do with me. We've got to guard our heart. So the first thing we've got to do is pray, and sometimes we need to pray specifically. The second thing is, is we need to recognize our selfishness. When I start looking down on my spouse, and we start nitpicking our spouses, and they're not doing this, or they're not doing that, start thinking, okay, I'm being selfish here, this is not all about me. What am I doing for her? See, that's my responsibility. 
to love her as Christ loved the church. It's her responsibility to love me and respect me and honor me. I don't have any control over that. So quit praying that she would be the wife that you deserve and you just focus on being the husband or the wife that your spouse deserves. Not deserves in her action, but deserves in a marriage. There are times when I have to pray, God, forgive me for being so selfish. She puts up with so much crap from me. Thank you for the grace that she shows. The third thing, you need to remind yourself that you only see the mask that people wear in public. Don't care how much time you spend with them at work, how much time you spend with them, or how often you see them. Everybody puts on the mask for the public. You ain't got a clue what they're like out of the public limelight. You don't know what she looks like without all that makeup on. You don't know what she looks like. when. Have, have you seen these these photos that of models they've got the photo where they've been photoshopped and touched up and then they show a photo of them without any makeup on and no touch up whoo don't even look like the same people the mask all of us wear them all of us and we got to remind ourselves that he or she probably ain't nothing like that in real life. Fourth thing you've got to do is remember what God has put up with in you. Remember, we're, we're saved by the grace of God. We want grace. We want mercy. We want long-suffering from God. We want Him to be patient with us. And we've got to remind ourselves what God has put up with in us. Because he has done it to us so that we can do it for others. The same grace I want from God is the same grace I need to give my spouse. The same mercy that I want from God, I need to give my spouse. The same long-suffering that I need from God, you need to give your spouse. long Suffering. That's why I don't say patience. Long-suffering. Some of you that have been married long enough know what I'm talking about. There are times for men and women where hormones are going nuts. And there are several years <laughs> that you just got to suffer through. Knowing that it's hormonal. It's not because she don't like you. It's not because he don't like you. It's just the way God made us, and we got to suffer through it with joy, with love. So we've got to remind ourselves what God has done for us, what God has demonstrated to us, and we're to, what he's given us, we're to give to our spouse. So that we can have this relationship that honors God. That, that the world looks at and says, wow, they made it through that. I'm just going to tell you, there is nothing, nothing that God can't redeem. 
It includes a marriage where one of the spouses has been unfaithful. I've heard way too many people say, if, you, if they ever cheat on me, I'm done. That's not what God says. Even the pagans do that. How is that an exceeding righteousness? It'll take a lot of work. It'll take a lot of time. It'll take a lot of prayer. It'll take a lot of refocus. It'll take a lot of long-suffering. But there is no sin that God can't redeem us from. So the fifth thing is this. Marriage, or excuse me, divorce cannot be an option. Divorce cannot be an option. Now the question always comes up, well what about in times where they're physically abusive? Yeah, you need to get out of that. But that doesn't that doesn't constitute about 95% of the divorces that take place. And even then, well, we don't get into it, that's a whole other sermon. Last thing. Well, it's, it's part of number five. Love never fails. We've got to remember, love never fails. We've got, to, we've got to work at developing this love that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we looked at last Sunday night. We mentioned it last week. This love that, that transforms, this love that enables us to live in such a way that, that we have an exceeding righteousness. It's, it's motivated by love. And we've got to understand what love means. It's not this crap that the world tells us love is what God says love is and how love acts. And if we will let the Holy Spirit develop that kind of love in us, divorce won't be an option. There's nothing that can't be worked out. There's nothing that can't be forgiven. There's nothing that can't be overcome in marriage. You say, I can't forgive. It's only because you don't want to forgive. I can't Trust again, it's only because you don't want to trust again. Now here's the good news. Maybe you've already experienced divorce. You know, repent of that. Now what does repentance mean? Is I turn away from what I used to do and how I used to be that led to that divorce and in this relationship, God, I'm going to honor you. So I've repented from what I've done in the past. And God, I want to honor you now in this relationship. I want you to be the center of this. I want to love my wife like you love the church. I want to love my husband with the honor and the, 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 the patience and the, uh, um, um, what he deserves from me. The same thing that I've received from you, let me give him. The same thing I've received from you, let me give to her. God, I want to be different in this relationship. And so God, God, forgive me for my past, but let my future honor you. And God is quick to forgive. There's only one unforgivable sin. It's blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It's turn away from conviction. 
Refuse to submit. That's the only unpardonable sin. If you've been divorced in the past, that's the past. Repent of that. Confess it. Put your life, your marriage, and your future under the authority of God and His Word and live for His glory now. And all of that is forgiven. See, the thing is, until we submit ourselves, our marriage, and our attitude, and remember that success is not meaning that God is going to fix our marriage. It means God's going to fix me, and I'm going to honor Him. And what my spouse does between them and God, i got no control over that. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to love them like Christ loved me, and I'm going to do everything I can to make this work. And that's all God asks of you in your marriage. But 99% of the time, if you will live like that, your spouse will love like that too. It'll change the whole dynamic of your marriage. God can redeem even the worst of marriages if we give Him time and give Him room. So maybe today, maybe today you're here and you've never accepted Christ. You're doing the best you can in marriage and it seems to be going pretty good, but it ain't near what it could be under, under the authority of God. Surrender your heart and your life to Him. Live for Him. Maybe you're here and you're, you're married and you're, you're saved. You and your spouse both are saved and you've been going through some hard times or you've gone through some hard times and, and, and man, you just need to be reminded that it's up to me to keep my passion and my focus and my joy in my spouse. Let me love them with a surpassing righteousness. And give God room and time to do what He can do in their heart. It's not my job, it's His. And see what God can do even in your marriage. You've got friends that are struggling, even Christian friends. Give them godly counsel. Don't give them counsel from the world or from your flesh. Give them godly counsel. Pray for them, encourage them, help them walk through this time in such a way that honors God.